0: Welcome to the Brain Gain Youngstown Leadership Series podcast. Each week, we'll learn from leaders who are driving change and making an impact. Now, here's your host, the CEO of the Youngstown Publishing Company, Jeff Leo Herman. We are live at Southwoods Health,
1: sitting down with Steve Davenport today, Chief Operating Officer of Southwoods Health. Thanks for being here today, Steve. Thanks for having me. Actually, thanks for having us here, because we are at your... It's great to Your grand you campus, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, we appreciate your time, and we definitely want to learn all about your career <laughs> and leadership lessons, right? So that's why we're here today, really to dig in. Who is Steve Davenport? I kind of refer to you as an enigma. Like everyone knows who you are, but you're, you know, you just you're a guy that just really executes and gets stuff done, and you have a great impact on the community. So I'm really looking forward to digging
2: in. A I appreciate bit that. Today. Yeah.
1: Thanks. All right. Well. You know, to start off with, as a child, what did you want to do when you grew up?
2: Yeah, have- it's a very good question. I was a very open ended, uh, that was a very open ended proposition for me. I think that uh, probably my earliest memory of what I wanted to do really came out of uh, high school. I had uh, a high school teacher that uh, taught physiology. And Mm -hmm. his name was Mr. Weiss out of Canfield. And uh, he taught in a way that was very open-ended. You learned a lot. And I think what that did was it kind of gave me this passion, this interest in actually pursuing medicine. So when I left Canfield High School, I was like, guess what? I think I'm going to become a doctor. And uh, I applied to a number of different colleges, ended up uh, selecting Dickinson College outside of uh, Harrisburg in a little town called uh, Carlisle, mm-hmm. and um, car it show. was Carlisle, PA, right? Car That's car uh, yep. Jim okay. Brown and uh, the Car <laughs> Show. That's uh, the two things that uh, it's known for, and um, it's um, it's one of those things where um, I went in as a chemistry major, and I thought, well, that was um, it was a liberal arts school. There was not like uh, two hundred and twenty thousand classes you could take, so right. it was really uh, you had to pick, you know, the tradition pathways. It was either going to be chemistry or biology. I chose chemistry. And uh, being a liberal arts school, I uh, had to take something else, you know, something that was from the arts and humanities, and I ended up taking a a class in economics. And during that first semester, um, I did all right in chemistry, but I soon got to that point of saying, I don't think I can take a full diet of this for the next four years and then transition that. And what did click in my mind was, Business and economics, and so it was after that first semester that I looked at, okay, do I want to continue, you know, down the path of, you know, uh, a chemistry major to go into, you know, into a med school and to to pursue that, or did I think that it uh, was worth looking at uh, what would the business realm look like? And it was at that point in time that still love medicine, and uh, as I look at where I'm at today, it's you know almost. Uh, fateful that I made that decision because I kind of get the best of both worlds. I right. get a chance to work in a very scientific-minded uh, you know, business, uh, be able to infuse some business into that. But that is how I ended up. I, I really thought I was going to be a, a doctor, and I give a lot of credit to our physicians that make a lot of sacrifices to do that. Absolutely. And I really believe that for one reason or another that uh, this ended up working out uh, the best way. I think so. Yeah, and and it's just like so many things in life and uh, i at that point in time i was at uh, dickinson 1800 students so not a big campus, right. you know, Canfield High School, I think at that time was 800. So it was bigger. I was jumping yeah. <laughs> from one environment into a larger environment, but it was still very small. And, um, you know, you do everything that you typically do on a campus. I was, uh, you know, swimming, studying, joined a fraternity, but it was really, I think, around the end of my uh, middle or end of my sophomore year that I got a little bit, uh, I guess a little bit um, unsettled and said, I uh, want to change. Yeah. And uh, I looked into uh, some study abroad programs and ended up uh, getting accepted at uh, Cambridge University uh, in uh, Great Britain really? and uh, no studied idea. advanced studies. I've known you, I have no yeah. idea. Yeah, these are the things. I, <laughs> I don't have much of a social media presence. So, you know, <laughs> right. I kind of look at it, I don't think anybody's that interested in what I do. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I was uh, intrigued. It was, uh, it was a way to continue my study probably in a different uh, light a little different focus and uh, you know if you could do it in the backdrop of Cambridge uh, you know uh, not a bad thing so I spent my junior year abroad and then came back had a great senior year and and graduated
1: was there anything from you know thinking of the UK I think immediately think the national health system
2: yeah and did you do you retain any information then that you think about today I do I think that uh, it's a lot about what education means to the Brits. I think right. that they've oftentimes said that um, you know you Americans have it all wrong. Um, you set this unrealistic expectation that everybody who goes to high school should go to college in their terms. they always say university, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. everybody uh, in America goes and is pressured to go to university, but um in Great Britain, it's actually very different. It's uh, about. Anywhere between 25 and 35 percent of their students go to university, and uh, the rest of those uh, people that graduate, you know, from their version of high school, end up getting linked with career and technical fields. There are a lot of co-op programs, and in many ways, I think that they're probably doing it a lot better because That's some cool. of the shortages I think that we're feeling right now, in our business world, with you know, we don't have enough skilled tradespeople, um, and it's in high demand. You know, whether you're a plumber or a steam fitter, uh, you know, you work with uh, lumber. You're a carpenter um, or a welder. They have really very close linkages, and they co-op those programs out. And it's a natural transition. So that if you don't feel like university is your next step, you know, in your life, there are so many different options, and it doesn't feel as isolating or narrowing, yeah. you know, in terms of what the possibilities are.
1: We're jumping way ahead to the end, but I can't help it. Uh, so I agree. Do you think our region and our our country has gotten better at acknowledging the need for trades, the need for careers in the military, the need for, you know, apprenticeship programs? Because, you know, you have kids in college. I have kids yeah. that will be in college eventually. Yeah. yeah. And there's still that stigma, right? There's still... You know, my wife is being, you got to go to college. I'm like, maybe not. Maybe you should weld. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And even if you want to go to college, at least, boy, if you can weld and go to college, you'll be like a triple threat.
2: It would be. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that it brings up a very interesting, I think we're getting better. I don't think we're better yet, but I think we're getting better. And I think that when you look at some of the local programs like Eastern Gateway, I know that I know a number of kids that my son graduated uh, from high school with at South Range um, that ended up taking advantage of the two-year program yeah. at uh, Eastern Gateway. And quite honestly, I think that gives, um, with some of the tuition subsidies and some of those opportunities, I think it gives people a little easier transition. It's local, it's in the community. Um, economically, I think it, it makes a lot of sense you know, for kids. And it gives them that taste of what a degree could look like and i have seen probably more people than not become very successful and say you know what i'm going to take this 2 year education from eastern gateway and i'm going to put that towards parlay that towards a 4 year degree right so i really think that that is an example about how it can be done and uh, on the educational standpoint, but I think that some of the programs that uh, they're also doing um, with some of the, the career and technical schools is helping show that, hey, they're in high demand, and I don't know what people's expectations are in terms of when they would go one of the skilled trades routes, but guess what, Lordstown used to be like you know, one of the primary employers, you can go there, you can earn a very good wage. But I think there are so many other options out there that can be explored through the oh, career yeah. and technical fields. I think we're getting better, but I don't see as many co op opportunities that have kind of dovetailed with the career and technical or that to give people, kids really, right. an opportunity to say, I've always wondered about this. Kids are like, you know, if you grow up, you know, the son of an attorney or a doctor, you're probably going to grow up wanting to become a doctor and an attorney. And I think that, I think it's really important that if you don't see that, okay, my dad was in business, I chose business. Um, If you don't see that pathway, I think it's so important to give people exposure and let them sample off of the buffet of life a little bit because those opportunities Starting in middle school and extending into high school, I think could be very instrumental in right. trying to get them to say, I don't know all about this, but there is a I'm career in healthcare, up. there is a career in the trades, there is a career somewhere else that is an alternative. And they can put that into the blender, talk with their family, right. talk with their teachers, their guidance counselors, and uh, see what really kind of works in. Yeah. You know, to see what's best for them.
1: 80s and 90s, we had to kind of guess yeah.
2: and gamble, right? I, yeah.
1: I think this is what I want to do. I'm going to go spend four years and a lot of money at this place, at this yeah. university. Yep. And I hope when I get out, I get something. I don't know. It was felt like a gamble. Like, yeah. roll the dice and you kind of had to feel your way. Where I agree, um, li- like, literally talking to my son this morning about, Exit strategies from business, like how do you do a deal, and ex- you know, and that's a weird conversation to have on the way to work. But I'm thinking he's interested. Maybe he'll be an investment banker. Get him a law degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then at the same point, my other son, he needs to go work in a machine shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Period. Because he loves building things, and I don't want anything to get in the way of his discovery of that,
2: right? And And I think as, as parents, you know, sometimes I think we do have a little bit of a bias. We want to see them earn a good living. We want to see them be financially independent, and above all, we want to see them happy. Right. And sometimes we see happiness through our own lens, and yeah, I think yeah. that it's it's very difficult, um, you know, when your kids take an interest in something that you either know nothing about or are a little bit concerned because it's maybe a little bit less than traditional. Right. But I think as parents, I think we just have to continue to be very patient and supportive, and kind of feel our way through there. And that's yeah. one thing. Like you know, I know you and Amy. I know that uh, the way that uh, um, that we've raised our you know kids as well is I want them to. To be innately curious. Right, right. And I want them to be able to take. Um, a risk because I was criticized by a lot of people when I left uh, Dickinson to go abroad. They said, yeah. "How can j- how can you live or leave, you know this because you know you're in the fraternity. We've got all the stuff going on. You're yeah. doing well in school, and something was just out there to say, you know what? There were only I think 18 students that were accepted from across the U.S. into this program, and some of it was okay. It's a cool thing to yeah. do. It's a great opportunity, but there was just this thing to say. I don't know if I will be challenged or if I'm going to be excited." To be in that environment, I had a great college experience. Absolutely. But taking the risk where I went and put myself into an environment that I did not know, you know, the other students I was going with, I didn't know the professors, I didn't know anything, it was like a totally blank slate. And I told my kids, I said, hey, you've got to be willing to take some of those smaller risks in life because right. it Will allow you to take on some of the bigger risks in life when you really comes time to like making a it, career right? decision or trying to figure out whether you know a business opportunity is an opportunity or is it something that uh, you know you want to pass on? Right. So I mean, just don't be paralyzed by that uh, the sense of fear.
1: Right. Right. And a calculated risk. Right. Moving abroad. That's a bigger. That's a bigger risk. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's a significant change. But like Eastern Gateway's programs, two-year degrees. That's, that's extremely low risk and extremely cost effective. And like you said, you can parlay that into other opportunities. And education these days is a journey, right? It's continuous. It really is. We don't stop, right? We no. literally don't stop no. learning. Yeah. So,
2: and I think that can be organized learning. And, uh, yeah. you know, Allie just uh, graduated. My daughter, you know, just graduated. Uh, she wanted a degree in fashion merchandising. So she went to Kent. And little did I know that Kent has the fifth rated or fourth rated <laughs> to program in the country about fashion merchandising. So I was like, I know nothing about that. I don't know what the opportunities are oh, going to be you have a I, don't dresser, Steve. I don't know I don't know no yeah she would be very disappointed in most of the ways if you saw me in the weekends you'd be like ooh Steve you got to help me out with this but she is very passionate about it so she just landed her first job yesterday and you know she you know graduating just got her first job so she's very exciting excited about those prospects yeah. but as a parent you're like okay now it takes on that next little bit of stress that okay Hopefully, you know, she'll feel like she made a good decision and, uh, you know, and succeed in it. But, uh, yeah, you can't be, whether it is your personal life or your business life, you've got to be willing to take, you know, some risks. And you have to be a continuous learner. I think you said that, and I would totally agree, is that some people are innately curious. I am am either uh, have a, a bit of attention deficit or I'm innately curious like to about everything. Number two. I would uh, Same hope, way. <laughs> but it could tie together yeah. very closely. But um, I am always asking the question. I'm very curious by nature. Right. And to work in the company that I work with, you know, Ed Moransky is not a guy that typically stays still for too long. And my personality and that kind of approach kind of fits with, you know, his dream of what he wants to do for. Southwoods in this community. It's It's yeah. uh, been a good pairing.
1: Well, let, let's talk about that. Let's transition into leadership style, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you guys work together? What? How would you characterize your leadership style and what impact has it made here at Southwoods Health?
2: It's funny. Um, I would say that I took a lot of my leadership style. One is, you know, I look at the way my parents, you know, raised us. We uh, had a lot of communication, open communication. My father was in uh, the business field. He worked as the uh, chief financial officer for DeBartolo for years. Mm-hmm and I saw the way that uh, he would handle whether things were going not right or they were going wonderfully is that, hey, he was never excitable much one way up or down. And I think that that is the first thing is that there are a lot of things that change. I mean, it could change day to day, hour to hour. Look at the year we just had with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you look at that, that steady as you go Let's not get too high. Let's not get too low. That is something I think that's very important. You know that really served probably as uh, as my basis. And then um, I did work for a couple of years uh, with uh, Ed in the insurance side of our business, and then uh, Don Papino, who mm-hmm. was still very involved on the insurance side of the business, and. I mean, I was young. I spent about 10 years uh, on that, you know, dealing with national accounts. And it was a little bit of insurance, but it was a lot of, you know, financially self-insured programs, structuring bigger financial programs. So it was a little bit of insurance, a little bit of financial structuring. It was very uh, exciting to me. And as, as I learned is that um, Don and Ed, when you put them together, they uh, are very, very good communicators. Mm-hmm. I think that um, they are very good problem solvers. They are able uh, to take the uh, Rubik's Cube that could be every color is on every side and it's a jumble, right? right? They can take the Rubik's Cube and kind of figure it out and play with that uh, cube to try to get all colors to be the same on each oh, wow. side. And when you see that, it's just it's the patience is 360, 360 degrees of um, a view. And I think that they engaged with their people that helped them help their business really effectively. And I think from those very early underpinnings, that's one of the things that I never really thought I would be in Youngstown, Ohio, 30 years later. Right. Um, But I, I have, I've never regretted a minute of it um and it's been something where my leadership style is pretty i'm very transparent um i don't have secret agendas i am uh if i if i am happy about somebody's performance, I'm going to say I'm really happy about that. If I'm not happy about it, I I tend to front door that. and That's grown to become a little bit more natural for me because rather than burying things and hoping that it's going to be different the next time, I find that people actually like to have that Onyx exchange And, and I'm not perfect. You know, I say some things that maybe could be deemed to be a little bit rough, you know what I mean, when it comes down to trying to accomplish the mission that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, if I, th- I have a rule that if I think about something more than two or three times, I go back to that person and say, listen, I've thought about this two or three times, and I'm sorry if I said something this way. But let's get back to the core of it. This is what I was really trying to get to, and maybe I didn't do a great job of delivery, but this is really what I was intending. And mm-hmm. I think that once people understand me and that I don't have you know, agendas that are not you know, in keeping, I kind of say that I'm here to, have, I have to call balls and strikes. And I think right. that my leadership style is, I will take seven years to help you with a problem you know and all I'm asking in for return is that on the eighth year you you show the benefits of what those seven years produced right you know what i mean that yeah, yeah. it's a building process and if i see people that have passion and they're trying that stimulates me right. so my my leadership style is i am very very hands on you know which has become a challenge for me you know our our business here has grown i mean right. we used to be uh, a smaller surgery center we went from surgery center. We went into a hospital. Then we started adding some of these satellite facilities, physician offices. Our footprint is much, much bigger than what it used to be. It's
1: amazing. I mean, and we're coming upon the 25th anniversary.
2: Yeah. So can you give the quick
1: sketch of, I don't want to say all of the elements, but, you know, just kind of give us the highlight of what is Southwoods Health today?
2: Southwoods Health today, you know, I'll kind of take it in chronology. We started out as an outpatient surgery center. When I joined the company, I think we were doing 2,400 procedures a year, and we saw the potential. Ed saw the potential, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was not easy, you know. But he said, Hey, you know, would you consider coming into healthcare? And I said, Ed, but for me being pre med for about three months, you know, during my freshman year of college, he said, I don't know anything about uh, healthcare. And he basically said, I know what you're capable of. Join it, you'll you'll figure it out. I know, and you know from that very early start, we started with you know outpatient surgery, and we built up the company. You know where we had to have our first expansion in two thousand and four. We, we doubled the size of our facility and added uh, some additional operating rooms, and endoscopy suites, and additional capacity, but we always stayed without patient surgery. Right. And then that changed around 2008, 2009, when we went into uh, an acute care hospital. Um, A lot of our physicians came to us and said, you know, my patients love what you guys do on the outpatient side. It would be great for them. It would be great for us if we didn't have to go to the other hospital providers. You guys are very efficient. And so we jumped into the hospital business, and that was really one of the big things where our employee count and the number of people that were working, you know, with us in this mission, you know, really made its first jump. So when I came on, I think we were doing, I had maybe 28 to 30 FTEs. And then, you know, today, you know, we're over a thousand FTEs that, wow. uh, you know, work with us, uh, you know, each and every day. So um, so in 09 we went into the uh, acute care hospital space uh, that really was helping us do uh, Some larger surgeries, Uh, you know, could have been anything from a hip replacement, knee replacement, shoulder replacements to advanced spine surgery. we do uh, colon resections. We do breast surgery. Uh, you know, so that really enabled us to say, listen, we can take more complicated cases that don't have to come and go on the same day, mm-hmm. and we can keep them for successive you know, nights. So that was um, a devoted. We did not know. We knew the surgery center business very well at that point yeah, in time. Right. We had to learn you know, the hospital business at that point in time, but it was stimulating to me. It right. was exciting. It was a, you know, it was a new challenge a new opportunity that was out there. And then once you become a hospital, you have the opportunity by your licensure to reach out and do other programs. And so we looked at uh, that next program. We added sleep back in 2010. So we did sleep diagnosis. Um, you know, with that, which is uh, an important thing with sleep apnea and and some of the comorbidities that come along with it. Mm-hmm. We got into that, and then in 2013, 2014, we entered uh, diagnostic imaging. We built Southwoods Imaging. Right. Um, we had acquired uh, uh, Hitchcock Imaging in 13, and we took uh, their. Basis, and we feel like we improved upon that, being respectful of the legacy that uh, their radiologists had built. But we built uh, imaging and brought, you know, two 3T magnets, you know, on the MRI side, uh, PET, CT, mammography, DEXA, you name it, we basically do it at imaging. And that was a whole nother, you know, and that was just. What 2009 we're a hospital. Right. Uh, 2010 we became we got into the sleep business. 2014, you know we got into the imaging business, and then we started looking at okay how else can we benefit our community? And at that time there were a lot of physicians that started saying, you know what, the government and the regulations is really taking away the time that we have to devote to medicine. Can we come in, can we partner with uh, you know, somebody like Southwoods to help manage, own our practice and let us focus on medicine. Right. And that has always been something that has been at the very heart of what we've done you know, with Southwoods is that if we can collaborate with our doctors, because we really believe that you take our physicians and their medical expertise. We have a lot of passionate doctors and very well-skilled doctors in Youngstown. If you can oh, yeah. take that, pair that with some business minds that can help make one plus one equal three you know I mean that is uh, the key and uh, that has been uh, one of our biggest points of uh, growth recently has been on what we call Triad health services or Southwoods physician services We've developed this network of primary care uh, internal medicine family practice physicians um, as well as you know, um, physicians for almost every specialty and have now formed a group that is uh, I think over a hundred providers strong at this point wow. in time and still growing and what that's doing is that it's giving us the ability to start seeing patients earlier on, not when they just need a surgery or not when they need you know a diagnostic exam done, but actually to care for them earlier in that cycle so now you know, we started Express Care. Right. You know, since we have this now, we have this primary care base, we got into the Express Care, which is just promoting access you know, for patients to get, you know, uh, their healthcare needs satisfied in, you know, in a little shorter time and a little bit more convenient basis. So Mm -hmm. Jeff, it's been really crazy that um, (laughs) it's almost like dog years, you know, that, um, you know, seven years everywhere else is almost like one year here at (laughs) Southwoods is that we've been on a very fast growth track. We've been able to get some really great people that work with us, you know, as far as our staff goes. And when you see their passion and their interest in trying to help drive where we're going. It's been a really magical thing. It's been a a fantastic opportunity.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And I do want to talk about careers in healthcare beyond physicians. Yeah. But first, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors.
0: The Brain Gain is a collaborative effort and we'd like to thank our headlining sponsors, including Farmers National Bank, Sweeney Chevrolet Buick GMC, the Mahoning Valley Manufacturers Coalition, and Southwoods Health. Also included are Eastern Gateway Community College, PNC Bank, the Maransky Companies, the Mahoning County Career and Technical Center, the Youngstown Business Incubator, Simon Roofing, the DeBartolo Corporation, Youngstown State University, and Junior Achievement of the Mahoney Valley. All right, so last
1: year at this time, I believe it was last April, we had an offsite focused on careers in the healthcare field. And you spent a lot of time talking about the importance of analytics and yeah. data, and data as it applies to healthcare. So beyond what are commonly understood careers in health, in the healthcare field physicians nursing Yeah, yeah those are, what, what other career opportunities are there and and say you're 1000 fte's
2: do you have an analytics arm do you do you use data to drive your business yeah. forward
1: talk about that a little and
2: bit. i think that as we've grown um, to use emr electronic medical records that is becoming much more the standard i think that most large hospitals um, have adopted uh, the electronic medical record. Governments are the government. CMS is asking us to do more with information sharing. So if you would uh, receive services at Southwoods and then show up at your primary care office or another uh, healthcare facility for care, that that would actually have one unified medical record where they could see without having to request records that, you know, that you know what care went on, what were the general results, so what it does is it really helps, I think, make the care continuum more efficient and a lot more for the patient, and I think it benefits it, because as smart as our patients are, sometimes they're not great historians about, (laughs) hey, what did this test result in, and what did this do, and what do you take in terms of your medications, and oh, What's the strength of your medication? Sometimes they're not great historians. I take a blue pill, I take a red pill, I take a white pill, you know what I mean? They have their cycle, but they don't know what that is. The electronic medical record is basically capturing all that information and being able to present it more and more real time. And so when we talked about the analytics side, analytics now we're collecting so much data, okay? Mm -hmm. Things that used to be on paper, and unless somebody took this paper and converted it it and keyed it in, you probably were not being able to capture a data point on something that was relevant or not. Mm. Now with everything being uh, in an EMR electronic format and a lot of it being discrete, we're now able to take selected data elements out of that and then start crunching data and understanding parts of our business that would have either been manual or not done at all because we weren't able to see it. So what we're doing, we're investing time and energy um, and money into the development of our analytics team, which is basically people that understand healthcare a little bit just from, okay, here's how the encounter would go and this is what is captured during an average encounter from a financial and clinical standpoint, and then what they do is that they serve as the interpreter. So when we have people in our business that say, hey, I'm a clinical leader, I wanna see what's my average length of stay and how many people stay over that, and why do they stay over that le- length of stay? How many complications right. do we see? How many people did we see under an average length of stay, and why? You know, So when you start looking at the trend and you're looking at more metadata, you're able to draw correlations be- between things that you might have guessed Mm -hmm. or not even thought about at any given point in time. So our analytics team is basically saying, I'm very good at database structures. I'm probably good at Excel or or Power BI, which are programs that help take data from databases and put it into a graphical or spreadsheet kind of a format. Mm -hmm. And then they walk it through the entire continuum, meeting with the people that will ultimately be consuming that data to determine what are we going to do with this? What is it telling us? Is it giving you what you want to see? And that's really what we have seen as being one of the most valuable things. And uh, you know, if I had another five people, you know, that understand understood data analytics today, I would take all five of them. Wow! Because wow. that is something that's very important. And when you look at you know the business side, you know, you know certainly the medical parts of our business, you know, physicians. Um, nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, CRNAs, our nurses, you know, our MAs, our PCAs, they all come together to do it on the medical side. But what we find is that the number of qualified people on the business side of our uh, of our uh, operation is really something that, uh, you know, we're struggling trying to find qualified people. So medical coding, mm-hmm. everything that we do in an operating room, a procedure suite, a... Uh, exam room has to be boiled down to a standardized code, okay? Right. So that's what they call as medical coding. So people have to read an abstract about what happened during a surgery and be able to understand that, okay, that translates into these codes and that's how we bill for our services. So medical coding is something that, uh, you know, it's a, it's an art and it's a science and right. it's a um, I don't believe there's a formal college degree, but it's certainly, I think, two to three years worth of studying. There is a certification that you need to get, but it is something that is um, very, very underserved. You know, customer service representatives, you know, people that are able to communicate, and understand right. how to use a computer and be able to solve problems that are, you know, or questions that are coming up on billing or coding or people that are mm-hmm. getting, you know, their EOBs in the mail. That's another thing that's, you know, very... Um, Probably underrepresented. So right. there are a number of careers in the health, uh, you know, information HIM field is what they is the technical right. term of it. That is everything from medical records to, um, you know, audit and compliance to, you know, coding. Very, very uh, underserved. And I think uh, that's where I see is the next evolution of you know the opportunities that exist mm-hmm. on the business side of healthcare.
1: So analytics certainly are driving a more effective and yeah. efficient
2: business these days.
1: Now, now you said there's no formal. There are certifications, but there's not a college degree in this area. That
2: HIM health information management does have um, college degrees. If you're going into uh, business analytics, they now are seeing uh, careers that are coming up. That is a college-facing a college-bound type of uh, experience there. I think they offer degrees in that as well. What I was saying on the medical coding side of things is that that is not a two-year or four-year degree, but it's a a very strenuous, arduous uh, certification where you have to know medical terminology. So when you're reading a physician's report about what he or she did in the OR, that you've got to be able to take that and then, mm-hmm. like I said, kind of boil that down into standardized code sets that are put out by the government.
1: That's the key, the standardization, yep. right? Because that's how you learn, that's how you interpret the data, having that universal denominator, right? And yep. That standardization, and
2: so then you can,
1: you know, make judgments across the data series over time. Yeah, so and that was probably the
2: standard. hardest thing that you know, as I got into this business, you know, if you are part of uh, Ed's business is selling pretzels, if you sell a uh, pretzel, you know what I mean? It's it's always going to be, you know, three dollars for a pretzel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in in our business, you know, you have to understand. Okay, how do I advertise? How do I bill for that pretzel? Mm-hmm. We have, mm-hmm. you know, CPT codes for outpatient work. We have DRGs for inpatient work, and then there are conversion factors that translate that code into a payment level. Right. And oh, by the way. If it's CMS, everybody gets paid basically the same way, but if you're dealing with a commercial insurance company, guess what, they have different payment methodologies, different payment rates, that's the art of negotiating how do you get paid for the services that you provide. And so when you look at analytics, we look at those things to make sure that we have parity Right. you know across all of our commercial contracts and you know certainly we handle our share of medicare medicaid and that those things that come together You know, kind of make the revenue cycle of the organization hum. If you look at where CMS and many of our commercial insurance companies are going, they are trying to, what I'm gonna call, I think it's a common term in the industry, is pay for performance. Mm -hmm. So, what they want you to do is say that if you perform at certain levels, they're putting incentive compensation out there to say, listen, you know, I'm gonna pay you on average, you know, X if you deliver good services, but if you deliver great services, patient satisfaction, great medical outcomes, good long-term results, then they will put quality incentive dollars into that equation. And that could be starting as early on in the uh, stream of commerce as a meeting with your family practice doctor for an annual physical. You should get an annual physical. right? I'm sometimes good about that, but they track how we can do
1: a PSA for Dr. Dunch Cause I had my colonoscopy. this. I'm past proud fall. of you. That's good. 50. I hit it. Good. I was like on time, had it right over here. Amazing experience. And I'm not saying that because we're sitting here in Southwoods, but. Well, I'm glad because I'm
2: glad that you came to us in a, a professional yeah. and a non-professional personal, but uh, our staff does a fantastic oh, yeah. job. I'm glad you had a good experience yeah. with that, but, very, um, very good experience. but they're like, even like that, that uh, many times, Patients aren't aware. okay, when I hit 50, I'm supposed to go get a colonoscopy. And in fact, if you have a family history, you should be going sure. earlier than that. And so what the government is trying to do is set certain benchmarks, milestones so that if you're a female over the age of, you know, I think the current standard of 45, um, you should be getting a mammogram you know, mm. you know every year. If you're you know male or female over the age of 50, you should be getting a colonoscopy. So they're doing these things. And what they're trying to do is say that if you're the primary care that's having the conversation, you know, with Jeff Herman, that you know that okay, Jeff, by having the conversation, he will then become aware of it, and you have to help encourage Jeff to seek the care right. that he should be getting at that point in time. Because I don't think people are, patently, um, not caring about their own health. Right. But I don't think that they always link that okay, it's not a priority right now. Right. You know, it's not pleasant to do uh, a colonoscopy prep, but if you've gone through it, it's not the worst thing either, yeah. and the knowledge of knowing that you've got, you've got a clean bill of health, that to me is more important than, you know, right. the 12 or 24 hours of, you know, prep time that you go through for right. a colonoscopy. So what the government and, and our commercial payers are doing is that they're trying to say how good is our medical team at identifying what needs to be done and how good are they at motivating the Jeff Hermans of the world to go out and actually complete what they should be doing either on a preventative or a routine maintenance side of their health. Right. and That's another point where analytics is starting to come in where we're taking a look at where are those care gaps. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if we know that you're 50, you should have had a colonoscopy, did you get a colonoscopy? And this kind of dovetails into the whole side. We should say that I don't have any record of Jeff going, whether it's at Southwoods or any other facility, of having a colonoscopy. I've got to close that care gap as a primary care provider because, A, it's best for you in your long-term health and B, it's also good for us because we can show that we are providing a good continuum of care, and C, in this order, is that there is enhanced quality payments because we're doing the job that we should be doing. So there's a little bit of a carrot and stick that's going on in the healthcare industry that's being promoted by CMS, which is Medicare, as well as our commercial- what does CMS stand for? Center for Medicaid, or Medicare and Medicaid Services. Okay, Center for, okay. Perfect. So, you know, they are basically our boss when it comes to governmental payers. So, right. if it's a Medicaid, you know, beneficiary or Medicare, you know, patient that uh, they kind of prescribe the medical policy, reimbursement policies that, you know, underpin most of, you know, the patients that uh, fall into those categories and many times our commercial payers will follow. Sometimes they don't. So Mm -hmm. it's very, very much a mixed bag. But uh, that is really kind of like the total conclusion is like, that's how data is kind of fitting into the care continuum. So it's a very organic synergistic approach that we're seeing um, in that. And I think we're just scratching the surface, quite honestly.
1: I I, I agree wholeheartedly. And and this is a great time to wrap up. Steve, you've been very generous with your time. Do you have a Leadership quote or a challenge you want to give to the community? You've, you've been a, an active member of the community for years now, leading here at Southwoods Health. So. I'll just say
2: it's probably we embody certain things, um, and I think that the best lessons are the lessons we try to impart in our kids. And it's like I said, maybe it's just that I am, you know, a few days past uh, college graduation, yeah. you know, and feeling that. And I think that it really comes down to um, remain curious ask questions, right. um, take on new challenges, even when they're not familiar because you have no idea what they're going to produce, you know, for you or your family in the long term and put the effort in, you know what I mean, to become passionate and to be knowledgeable about what you do. Right. And I think if you are able to get those things put together, I think it's an unbeatable combination. I really Absolutely.
1: do. Well, thanks so much for your time today.
2: Great to have you great. on the podcast. Nice chatting with you.
1: Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, because together we're building a culture of entrepreneurship and promoting workforce development. So if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Your feedback is very important to us. We want to make the show better all the time. And if you would like to give me direct feedback, email me, please. My email is Jay. H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N at business-journal.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. And lastly, would love to thank the members of the Brain Gain Coalition. Those headline collaborators include Farmers National Bank, Sweeney Chevrolet Buick GMC, the Mahoney Valley Manufacturers Coalition, and Southwoods Health. And joining them are members of the coalition, including Eastern Gateway Community College, PNC Bank, the Moransky Companies, MCCTC, the Mahoning County Career and Technical Center, the Youngstown Business Incubator, Simon Roofing, the DeBartolo Corporation, Youngstown State University, and Junior Achievement of Mahoning Valley. Without them, none of this would be possible. So thanks again for joining us today. And remember, together we are building a culture of entrepreneurship, and promoting workforce development.